You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today we're going to be reading from uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossian church, to to the church in in Colossae. Um, If you don't have a Bible, if you see one of these black Bibles in the back of of the pew or right in front of you, um, please please feel free to take that Bible home and use that for, for yourself. That is our gift to you. We'll be reading from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 17. You could also find that on page 984. And the Apostle Paul wrote, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with with thankfulness in your heart to, to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. All rise for the reading of the gospel. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, found on page 810 in your pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. By way of orientation, we are in the season of ordinary time. And during this season, we are pursuing a sermon series on the Beatitudes of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. 
And the Beatitudes are these incredible, short, concise, like punchy, powerful statements of Jesus that he uses to kick off his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount and he comes out swinging with the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are designed to be memorized. That's, that's like that format, that structure of Beatitude is designed for easy memorization. And so if you're a member here and you haven't memorized the Beatitudes, that could be a place to start this week. Uh, you, could, you could try that. Now, thus far in this series, we've talked about the paradoxes of poverty, grief, gentleness, appetite, mercy, and then last week was purity. And I think it's so interesting that our beatitude this week, blessed are the peacemakers, falls in between blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are those who are persecuted. It's almost as if Jesus knows that in order to be a peacemaker, you're going to need that purity of heart. And if you actually are a peacemaker, guess what's going to happen to you? You're probably going to be persecuted. So there's a reality happening there, even in the structure that Jesus is using. Today, we're going to talk about the paradox of peace. And as we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our world is at war. Russia is at war with Ukraine, Hamas is at war with Israel, Afghanistan, Colombia, Ethiopia, Mali, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen are all in the midst of civil wars. You might have known of some of that, you might not have known of all of that. Burkina Faso, Democratic Republic of Congo, Iraq, Nigeria, and Sudan are all dealing with terrorist insurgencies within their own borders, closer to home. There have been 389 school shootings in the United States since the 1999 school shooting at Columbine High School, which, by the way, was not the first. It was just the first one to become famous. Many of you were either present or knew someone who was present at the school shooting this year on June 6th during the high school graduation ceremony just down the road at the Altria Theater. And thus far in Richmond, there have been 53 homicides in this year alone. Now, all of this just describes a kind of physical violence, a kind of physical conflict. But we know and we experience every day a kind of like verbal and emotional and relational violence mediated through the internet every time you log on. And I was listening to some friends of mine recently. I kind of like did one of those where I entered into a conversation that was already happening. I was just kind of listening. And what they were talking about is they were kind of bemoaning the, fa the fact that there's an upcoming election because everybody knows ahead of time just how nasty it's going to get, Right? how angry and hateful and divisive people tend to become around a presidential election. And none of that yet that we've talked about even yet touches the network of relationships that we all inhabit every day that are constantly threatened by conflict. Marriages that are strained, children that are frustrated, friends that are suspicious of each other, everybody feeling hurt and wounded by what other people said or did not say, by what other people did or did not do. Thomas Hobbes, a 16th century English philosopher, called this dynamic the bellum omnium contra omnes, which, you know, for the two of you who didn't brush up on your Latin this morning, that means the war of, <laughs> I had to look it up too, the war of all against all, or you might say the war of everyone against everyone. Thomas Hobbes described this as the natural state of humanity, a state of continual fear. And in the same paragraph as the war of everyone against everyone, he also wrote, a more famous sentence that goes like this. The life of a human is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. <laughs> we're, off, we're off to a good start, right? <laughs> you, 
Some of you are regretting coming to church this morning. Um, so our world's at war. And into a world at war, God speaks a word. And the word that God speaks is a word of peace. A word of peace. Peace is native to God's character and God's being. Out of the peace that exists within the Holy Trinity, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of the, that relational peace, the peace of the world is born. In the very beginning of the Genesis narrative, there's the description of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. It's an image of peace. You might not know this, but there are alternative ancient Near Eastern creation stories from this time in history uh, in which the book of Genesis was written that depict the world being created not out of peace, but out of conflict, out of the chaos of war with the God of the sea. And so you just need to understand when you open the Bible and start to read, you are reading a narrative that was set as a counter narrative against the dominant creation narrative of that time. God's world begins in peace, not war. In other words, according to God, in Genesis, peace is the natural state of things, not war. And that's why nobody ever gets used to war. Even people that have only known conflict their whole life, you never get used to it. Nobody ever gets used to pain. Nobody ever gets used to violence or anger or hate or harsh words. Peace, the shalom of God, the way things are meant to be, and we know it in our bones. Every human knows this instinctively, even if they can't articulate it. Now, the peace described in the Bible was broken through human sin. First, the peace with God is broken through disobedience. Then peace with, within humanity itself was broken in nakedness and shame. Then peace with each other is broken in blaming and conflict. And then peace with the world is broken as the ground itself is put under a curse. In other words, if shalom is the natural state of things in the beginning of creation, shalom broken is what happens when sin enters the picture. But then... God doesn't give up on the shalom of his world. He calls Israel, a subset of humanity, to be a bearer of God's peace, his peace in the world. Israel, though, fails to embody the peace that God intends them to. And so God becomes a human, becomes the beginning of a new Israel in Jesus to succeed where Israel failed and to establish a new kind of peace. When Jesus enters the scene, you might say it's the inbreaking of shalom or shalom in process. And then the biblical story ends with shalom at rest where peace reigns forever and ever and ever. And so into that story of peace, bookended by peace with a lot of conflict in the middle, you have our text, the Beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we're going to talk about this paradox of peace. And we're going to do so through a few different angles. Angle number one is just simply, what does peace require? What is, what is peace? And then angle number two is going to be we're going to kind of turn the mirror on ourselves and examine how we tend to handle conflict and why it tends to make things worse. So way number one, what peace requires. Thing number two, how do we handle conflict and why does it make things worse? And then we'll end by simply just talking about some practices of peacemaking. Practices of peacemaking. So first, what does peace require? It's a beatitude. Beatitudes have a particular structure to them. Beatitudes begin with the word blessed. In Greek, it's makarios. It means something akin to congratulations or how lucky or how fortunate. It's an intensely positive word. If you were Australian, it would go something like good on you. Good on you, peacemakers, because you're going to be called children of God. Now, peacemaking requires two parties. Peacemaking is relational. It could be between yourself and another party, or it could be you as the third party entering into help two other parties who are in conflict with each other. But peace is relational. It always includes, includes two parties. And what is peace according to the Bible? Peace is not the absence of conflict. 
It is rather the presence of harmony and wholeness and truth and goodness. This is a really important thing to note. Peace is not an absence of something. It's the presence of something. In other words, peace is a real thing, not just a vacuum where there aren't bad things. Peace can't be forced, therefore, but it can be cultivated. It can be nurtured. Peace is kind of, you might think of it like a plant or a tree. Peace can be nurtured and watered and fed, sometimes pruned, that would be healthy conflict, with harvests of joy and delight. And what does peace require? What does peacemaking require? Well, if two parties are in conflict, then the first thing that has to happen must be a ceasing of hostilities. Peace can't be cultivated until people stop shooting or yelling or avoiding each other. And then after the ceasing of conflict or the ceasefire must come some sort of truth-telling. And this is why peacemaking is so very different from peacekeeping. Peacekeeping just wants to maintain the status quo. Peacekeeping says any form of conflict is bad, so even if the system itself is unjust, we just need to kind of like keep things okay. Peacemaking, on the other hand, always requires truth-telling. There must be honesty. What's really happened? Who did what? Who said what? And then after truth-telling comes repentance and forgiveness, which is another form of honesty, right? Owning your, your side of things. Repentance and forgiveness, and then that leads to a commitment to trust in the relationship. In other words, peacemaking hasn't really happened until there's relational wholeness restored. There has to be trust there. And then it goes forward with a willingness to live differently. So peacemaking puts you on a trajectory. It's not just the absence of something, it's the presence of goodness going forward in the relationship. This is what real peace requires. And the beatitude has a certain kind of logic to it that sounds paradoxical to us, but it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And of course, for you sisters in the room, like it's children of God. So it's, it's, a, it's a cumulative category here. Children of God. If you're in the first century and you go and ask a random person on the street in first century Middle Eastern world, who's a child of God or who's a son of God or who's a daughter of God? The, the, by the way, that would be a weird way to start a conversation. Don't do that. That's socially awkward. But if you were to do that, the standard answer would be, oh, Caesar. Caesar's a son of God. Why? Because he's the one that brought peace to the empire. Now, he did it through war, but there's the general sense in the first century that peacemaking is, is kind of a divine thing. Peacemaking is a godlike act. Now, if this is what peace requires, that's what peace is, how do we tend to approach peace? Which is another way of saying, how do we approach conflict? How do we seek peace in the midst of conflict? You know, it's worth noting, y'all, that in talking about peace, we are forced to confront the reality that our spirituality must have something to do with other people. The desert mothers and fathers of the ancient church are some of our best teachers on this. And here's what they have to say. Relation with eternal truth and love, that's God, simply doesn't happen without mending our relations with neighbors. The actual substance of our relation with eternal truth and love, again, that's God, is bound up with how we manage the proximity of those human neighbors. In other words, translation, your life with God is intimately connected with your life with other people. There's no such thing as a healthy relationship with God that is not expressed in healthy relationships with other people. 
This is why, and uh, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but if you're the kind of person who tends to think of yourself as like, I've got a great relationship with God, I love God, I pray to God, I read the Bible, I feel really close to God, but I just tend to have relational problems all the time, and that's all other people's fault. Mm. The desert fathers and mothers of the church would say, oh, you are greatly self-deceived. There is no such thing as a healthy relationship with God that does not lead to healthy relationships with others. So if your relationships with others tend to constantly be in conflict, what does that say about your relationship with God? Peace is relational. And everybody wants peace, right? So I want peace, you want peace. If we had a show of hands, like raise your hands, everybody wants peace, 100%. 100% of humanity wants peace. People that are at war right now say they want peace, right? So if we all want peace, why isn't there peace? Well, it's because they, right? Oh, it's the them. It's always the them. That's why we don't have peace. Everyone says they want peace, but they often do it with guns in their hands and harsh words in their mouths. Now, as we continue to think, just press in a little bit deeper about the ways we go about seeking peace, especially in the midst of conflict, I want to use the image uh, metaphor of a stick of dynamite. And we're going to talk about the long fuse people, the short fuse people, and what we might call the no-fuse people, okay? So just hold that image in your mind and let's, let's describe some different kinds of people in the room. First, the no-fuse person. This is the stick of dynamite that never goes off, okay? You think of yourself as a very peaceful person. You want to get along with everyone. You want everyone to get along with others. You avoid conflict at all costs, right? And some of you, as you're just thinking about this, you're like, this breeds a kind of like false peace, a kind of cheap peace. It's like, Peace at the cost of truth, right? Too much truth-telling will disturb the peace, and we can't have that. So we'll forgo truth in order to have peace. That's the no-fuse person, the stick of dynamite that never goes off. And that's very different from the short-fuse person. In fact, it's almost the opposite. The the, the short-fuse person, very quick to initiate conflict, almost never at peace. There's a kind of restlessness here. You like to think of yourself as a very truthful person, right? And if something is wrong, can you let it go? You cannot let it go, right? It doesn't matter whether it's a great, like, big social moral issue or someone loaded the dishwasher the wrong way, right? You can't let it go. There's a right way and a wrong way to do everything, and everybody does things the wrong way, and you have to let them know, right? It's peace at the cost of the other person, right? So the no-fuse person is peace at the co- peace at the cost of truth. The short-fuse person is peace at the cost of the relationship. Only when other people admit they're wrong and acknowledge that you're right can there be peace, right? Now, both of these are very different from the long-fuse person. This is the person who just kind of stuffs the conflict down and down and down. It's kind of like a pretend piece. And then eventually they just can't take it anymore and they blow up, right? And this, this kind of person tends to think of themselves as long-suffering, very, very patient. They, they feel good about how patient they are. They know how much they haven't said, Right? And they give other people second and third and fourth and fifth chances. Here's the thing, though. If this is you, you're keeping score, but you're the only one that knows you're keeping score. You have a list. 
And the people who are on that list, they don't even know they're on that list, right? And eventually you can't take it anymore. And once you're done, you are really done. Then the dynamite goes off and the relationship is over because after all, you gave them so many chances to change. Now, what do these three different kinds of people have in common? There's actually a single core motivation underneath all three of these kinds of people. They all present as very different from each other, but deep, deep down, there's actually a sameness. The motivation, the inner heart motivation is fear. Fear is actually underneath all of this, and we're gonna, I'm going to explain why in a minute. But first, there's a quote from Yoda. You know that little green annoying character from the Star Wars franchise? Just as an aside, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I disagree with almost everything Yoda has to say. Like, his statements are just grammatically atrocious, and, and he doesn't make any sense. His whole little bit about, like, do or do not, there is no try, I'm like, you're just off. Like, all of life is one big try, okay? So anyway, don't listen to Yoda. But he does have one insightful little line that directly pertains to what we're talking about, where in his little Yoda voice, he says, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Or for our purposes, we might say hate leads to conflict. You see, fear drives some people to either freeze or fight or fly, run away. Fear is underneath all of conflict. If you just keep digging through layers of sediment and soil deep down into a person, eventually you hit a water table and it's fear. Fear of not being enough, fear of being left out, fear of being taken advantage of, fear of being the wrong kind of person, fear of losing, fear of being victimized, fear of losing your cherished way of life. You know, all of our news media outlets are these like kind of fear factories now where if you think about it, like what do CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, The Atlantic, like whatever your news source is, like whatever you read or watch or listen to, what do they all have in common? All of them are stoking a kind of fear. Now they've chosen different kinds of fear and therefore they have different constituencies, but they're still playing off the same factor. It's the way to sell column inches and advertising minutes is to prey upon fear. There's a lot of money to be made if you can make people afraid. If you want to raise some money, figure out what people are afraid of and go after that. Wallets open. If you are willing to stoke people's fear, you can get candidates elected. You can sell people things they don't want or need. Our one habit that um, I've sought to take up over the years, and I'm sort of working on getting our family into this habit is, is it's almost like a little kind of micro liturgy where whenever we encounter something on TV or in a movie or a commercial that's kind of fear baiting, we say out loud and we point, stop making me afraid, and then close the computer, turn off the TV, change the channel or close the thing, whatever it is. And that's kind of a silly response. You know what a better response would be? Here's what I should do. It's what Wendell Berry describes in his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. He writes, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, there's the fear. I go and I lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. And for a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. 
You know, but too often I don't take my fear to a place of rest and grace and freedom. Rather, I tend to kind of marinate in my fear. I think this is what we do, like a pork chops, chop soaking up barbecue sauce. It's like a little, like you just kind of sit in it and stew in your fear. And then as we do that, our fear turns to anger, anger turns to hate, and our hate breeds a kind of conflict all around us. And this weakens all relationships. It makes all relationships fragile. Marriages, families, church communities, church communities, friendships, workplaces, our city, our world, underneath every delicate, fragile, half-broken relationship is the original broken relationship, which is we do not have peace with God. Lack of peace with God is underneath those broken relationships and the fragility in our relationships. You see, Here's reality, right? Conflict is going to happen to you whether you want it or not, right? Conflict's a norm. It's going to happen. And conflict will happen to you whether or not you have peace with God. However, your complicity in the conflict will be a direct result of the reality that there is unresolved conflict between you and God. And this is just as true for Christians as for unbelievers because fear is a strong motivator for both. Christians can be motivated by fear just as much as people who don't believe in God or any of this stuff would be motivated by fear. And so you might be the kind of person who's avoiding God and distracting yourself, maybe even distracting yourself with a lot of Christian activity so that you don't have to deal with God directly. Or you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum. You might be screaming at the sky, bringing your conflict directly to God. Or you might be allowing your chronic disappointment with God to build and build as bitterness pollutes your heart until there's a final straw and you give God something of an ultimatum. God, if you don't enact this in my life, we're done. And then you walk away from faith. The war of everyone against everyone is not just happening out there. It's actually happening inside of you. The author of the book of James in James chapter four writes, these conflicts, these disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from cravings that are at war within you? In other words, all of that conflict on the outside is actually just downstream from the conflict that's on the inside. Now, listen if you can. Into war, God speaks a word. And what word does God speak? It's a word of peace. God desires peace with you. God's not all those different ways that we have of dealing with conflict. God doesn't do any of those. He's not avoiding you. You might feel that way sometimes, but he's not avoiding you. Neither is he screaming at you. Neither is he letting disappointment and bitterness against you build up that you have like eight more strikes and then he's done with you. No, God is not motivated by fear. God is motivated by what? By love. And so God is fully present. He's right here. And the incarnation of the Son of God and the person of Jesus is God's way of showing us his commitment to be fully present, even in the midst of conflict. God becomes a human being. And isn't it interesting that God becomes a human being not not temporarily? God doesn't become human as an object lesson. God becomes human permanently in Jesus. Jesus is still a human right now. This is God's commitment to be fully present to us in our humanity. 
And the cross of Jesus is the peace offering that makes healing possible between God and humanity. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the fear, the hate, the violence, the conflict of this world into his own body. And then as his body died, he then put all of that to death in himself so that all who have faith in him one day will also be able to put away the fear and the hate and the violence and the conflict to death in their lives. You see, the bodily resurrection of Jesus after the cross is the proof, it's the, it's the evidence, it's the vindication that all of this that we're talking about is not just an idea that lives in our minds, it's a reality. And this is, this is gonna sound like a quick little aside, but it really makes all the difference in the world. This is why the kind of peace and peacemaking that Jesus offers is so radically different from all the other conversations about peace and peacemaking going on in our world. Let's just pick one example. This is what makes the peace of Jesus so different from the peace of Buddhism. There's kind of like a neo-Buddhism that is like so popular right now, right? That would say that through certain kinds of, of kind of meditation and detachment, you can achieve a kind of inner peace and that can then become a kind of peace with other people and a peace in the world. But listen, Buddhism teaches peace and peacemaking only through detachment to self, detachment to others and detachment to the world, which is, listen, the opposite of what Jesus does. You see, Jesus offers a kind of peacemaking through attachment, through attachment to you and to the world and to God. Jesus is motivated by love, not by detachment. And so the kind of peacemaking that Jesus then sends his people on is actually the opposite kind of peacemaking that you might encounter through a kind of neo-Buddhism where you're not seeking to care less about the conflict of the world, to believe less that the conflict of the world is even real. Rather, you move towards it from a place of love, motivated by love, to be attached to others, maybe even to enemies. Howard Thurman, the author of the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, puts it this way. The religion of Jesus makes the love ethic central. So Jesus makes peace between us and God. Conflict and wounds between us and God that are caused by sin can actually be healed. And this leads to a kind of inner peace within ourselves. The shame and disintegration and self-loathing that so many of us struggle with is reintegrated as we become our true self, adopted as children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God, children of God. That's our identity. That's who we are. Through the gospel of Jesus, sons of God, daughters of God, blessed children of God. And this peace between God and us and then within us in ourselves then outflows into becoming peace with each other. At peace with God, we now have this deep reservoir of inner peace to draw upon in order to be at peace with other people. And Jesus makes peace reign in the world. We then become sent out as peacemakers, bearing with us the very peace of God within ourselves. Jesus brings shalom. He's deposited a foretaste of shalom in our inner beings with his Holy Spirit. And listen, if you can, let's press into this for just another minute more. The Holy Spirit makes inner peace for a Christian possible. You won't have it all the time. That would be silly. You're in process. You haven't arrived yet. But it makes inner peace possible. You can cultivate that peace because peace is, after all, a presence, not an absence. Peace can grow within you like a plant, like a tree. It can flourish. Learn to live with the spirit of Jesus, which is to say, learn to live in peace with Jesus. 
and peace will grow within you. This is why the Apostle Paul is able to write things like he does in 2 Thessalonians. Now may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times in every way. I would like that. I would like peace at all times in every way. I don't have it yet, but that's where we're going. The prophet Isaiah put it a different way. He, he, he writes, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Or as Jesus says later in the gospel of John in chapter 14, peace I live with, leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Isn't it interesting that for Jesus, the opposite of peace is fear. In other words, I'm giving you peace and that means you're not gonna be afraid. That's the counter there. And then the Apostle Paul again in Colossians chapter three, which Olson read earlier in the service, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Friends, I hope we're kind of getting this together. The paradox of peace is that the cross the historic symbol of conflict and war and torture and violence is now for us the symbol of peace. And therefore to make peace in the way of Jesus is always for the good of the other at cost to the self. That's how Jesus makes peace. Therefore, that's how his followers make peace. Peacemaking always requires self-sacrifice. It did for Jesus, it does for us too. Peacemaking is the way of the cross. Now, we're gonna conclude by just naming a couple practices of peacemaking. And it's important to, to kind of see all of these practices under this heading. Peacemaking is part of the vocation of all Christians. Peacemaking is not just for those who are into that sort of thing. Peacemaking is for every follower of Jesus. Before the service began uh, this morning, our, some of our staff gather for prayer at 7.30. And one of the things we kind of said to each other this morning is, there are a lot of Christians in the world. If every follower of Jesus was a peacemaker, how much more peace would there be, <laughs> right? Every follower of Jesus is to be a peacemaker. Frederick uh, Bowerschmidt, a professor at Loyola University, puts it this way, and he writes in response to what Thomas Hobbes wrote about, about the state of fear and war in humanity. He says this, if Thomas Hobbes is wrong and the book of Genesis is right, then human reconciliation with God is our return to our natural state of things. And it's inseparable from our reconciliation to each other. To end the war of humanity against God is to end the war of everyone against everyone. So what peacemaking practices lie before you? Uh, it actually depends on who you are. It's not the same for everybody. So let's go back through, let's go back to that stick of dynamite, that image, and let's talk about those three different kinds of people. If you're a no-fuse person who tends to avoid conflict, then your homework might be, with the strength of the Holy Spirit, to work up the courage to say, with kindness but, but firmness, I have a problem. I have an issue I would like to raise. Now, you do this within the security and the trust of a committed relationship. You're not canceling the friendship. The relationship is not on the line. But within the context of that loving relationship, you are bringing, for health, a little bit of conflict. If you need another image, you might think of it as pruning a tree in order for it to be more, fruit, more fruitful in the future. A good, healthy tree at times has to be cut back. A good, healthy relationship at times is gonna require some conflict. 
What you're doing in this moment is you're choosing love over fear by loving others enough to disagree with them. You're choosing long-term costly peace over short-term cheap peace. Now, that's really different. In fact, that's opposite from the short fuse person. The short fuse person tends to be very quick to voice your problems with others. And if this is you, then your homework might be with the strength of the Holy Spirit to hold your tongue and just stop talking. And if you're wondering at this moment, which one of these people am I? There I am. This is me. I need to hold my tongue and just stop talking. I need to practice the way of peace by remembering that the Lord sees me and the Lord is the one who will make all things well in the end, not me. In this moment, the invitation for me and for people like me is to choose love over fear by loving others enough to withhold criticism. Choosing being loving rather than being right. Isn't that the worst choice in the world? (laughs) All of you are like, no, that's just you. Um, You're choosing loving rather than being right. You're choosing peace right now. Now, both of these are different from the long-fused person. The long-fused person tends to hold a lot of pent-up frustration with other people. And what you need, your homework, is actually you need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to sort and sift through your anger and to discern which issues should be raised with gentleness and which issues should simply be let go, genuinely let go. And that's, and that's the hard part. The hard part is actually putting this into practice, initiating that gentle conflict all within the security of a trusting and, and committed relationship. If the, the status of the relationship is not on the line. But for the health of the relationship, you're raising a little bit of conflict. And the rest you genuinely and authentically will never, ever, ever bring up because you're going to let it go. And it's not going to build up within you. What you're doing in this moment is you're choosing love over fear by keeping short accounts. First, you're putting 1 Corinthians 13 into practice. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You burn the list. You're just not keeping score anymore. And you're choosing long-term peace by refusing to let resentment or bitterness build up inside of you. And all three of these kinds of people can do this hard work of peacemaking because, as Julian of Norwich said, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. A follower of Jesus practices peace. And as they do this, they become kind of like a stone that slows down the flow of a raging river, or like a sponge that absorbs the vicious words that are sent flying towards them, or like an airbag that cushions the impact when other people crash into each other. Does a stone or a sponge or an airbag have a peaceful existence? Oh, they do not. And therein is another angle on the paradox. Those who are peacemakers do not actually experience very much peace. They're constantly moving towards conflict, not away from conflict. But here's what they do. They become a stone in the midst of a raging river. A stone is constantly being buffeted and pummeled by whitewater, but what it creates is on the the downstream side of that rock, there's this little eddy of peace. Right there in the middle of the chaotic river, there's this little eddy of peace. And you know what a fish can do? A fish can swim up behind that stone and rest and eat and not get carried off downstream. And you can become like that. People that swim up alongside you, oh, they experience just a little bit of peace 
they can rest when they're near you because you are that stone in the midst of the white water. Or you're like a sponge. Does a sponge have a peaceful existence? It does not. A sponge has a gross existence, right? It's constantly being used to wipe up filth and dirt and spills and leaks, but by soaking the pollutants up inside of itself, it makes everybody around it cleaner, right? Or an airbag. An airbag is there to receive the full force of the violent impact so that someone else, maybe even the person who caused the crash, doesn't feel the full force of the impact. And so you save lives, so you save relationships. This is what individual Christians practice as peacemakers. Christians are people of peace, even in the midst of conflict. Christians are little Christs, little images of Jesus, who bring the peace of Jesus everywhere they go. And listen if you can, we're almost done here. The peaceful presence of Christians in the world is a huge part of the missional presence of the church. The peaceful presence of individual Christians in the world is a huge part of the missional presence of the church in the world. You see, when the church lives as a peaceful, non-fearful, non-violent, non-hateful presence to neighbors and to the city, then you know what the neighbors in the city get? They get a foretaste of the kingdom of God because they've encountered a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God. And when a neighbor here in the city encounters a follower of Jesus, they are encountering a little place of calm in the midst of the storm because each Christian is like a little demilitarized zone walking around in the midst of the chaos of war, the war of everybody against everybody. Now, that's why this table is so central to being a peacemaker. This table is a zone of peace in the midst of a world at war. In order to come to the table, we must be at peace with God and also with each other. There must be peace within and there must be peace without. And then when that happens, the peace that we practice at the table has integrity. There's an integrity to coming to the communion table. It's not pretend, it's real. Because of the peacemaking work we've done, not only with each other through the gospel of Jesus, but also, sorry, not only with God through the gospel of Jesus, but also with each other. That's why in the midst of a communion service, we share the peace of God with each other before we come to the table. It's a symbolic act. You can't actually go to every single person in the room, but it's a symbolic act that is meant to trigger in your mind, oh, if I'm not at peace with a brother or a sister in the family of the church, that I'm actually compelled to go and to make peace with them before we then partake of the symbol of peace. So friends, let's go to God in song and in creed and in prayer and in confession and then in bread and in wine so that we might become peacemakers, living as God's children and be blessed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us peace with you through the good news of the gospel of your son and that would overflow into peace with one another. Lord, this is only possible through the mystery of the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Please, Holy Spirit, come and give us the ability to be peacemakers. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.